When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you doing tonight, Allison? I'm doing well. We're not alone. We are not alone. <laughs> John is in the room with us. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great. Hi, everybody. And Tyler Strand is on the phone. How are you doing, Tyler? I am doing excellent, and I am honored to be here once I'm, again. I'm glad you're here. And there is a reason why these particular people are here. Chad couldn't make it. Chad was due to be here as well, but he just couldn't make it tonight. So Chad should be here. And there's a reason why we're all together, but that's not going to be revealed just yet. We're going to be talking tonight about a story I covered way back in episode four. I can't believe it was that long ago. You were listening to it this morning, and I was like, wow, it doesn't sound the same as the podcast. No, no. <laughs> we've sort of grown and changed a good bit. I'm very excited to cover this story again. This is the story of the witch diggers. Tonight, we're going to reread the article that we did in episode four, but we're going to put new commentary to it. But before we get to that, I want to thank our patrons. Thank you, patrons. Thank you for your help. Thank you for everything you do to support the show. We could not make Strange Familiars without your help, nor would we want to. If you like what we do and you'd like to get more content besides, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All of our patrons get extra shows, full extra shows, at least one every month. Sometimes we do more than one. And commercial-free versions of the weekly show as well. Again, to check it out, go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. And there's a program on Apple Podcasts as well. It is called Patron of the Strange. And if you sign up there, you can get the commercial-free episodes and the extra episodes every month as well. Once again, thanks, patrons. Patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. And for Strange Familiars merch, strangefamiliars.com slash merch. All right, the witch diggers. So how much does each of you remember about this story? Well, it's kind of funny. I was thinking back. I actually think that was my first episode of Strange Familiars that I heard. Because oh, really? I think I'd missed the first few, caught wind of it, and I did re-listen to it this past week. And I was like, I remember this. This is the first one I heard. Oh, cool. So yeah, I kind of refreshed myself on the story. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Well, given my nature of compulsion, I would be lying. 
if I didn't say that I completely reviewed the prior episode before this recording and also took plenty of notes. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm pretty, <laughs> but I didn't obsess over it, but I'm, I'm pretty well versed as for what is out there. And I'm, I find it to be a very curious case. So I'm excited to dig into it with you guys and see what your thoughts are and how you, were, you want to go about this. You were familiar with it before though, too, because I remember I mentioned something to you about it and you were like, Oh, I love that case. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It ties into a lot of what I already find interest in, which I think has a lot of curious overlap with different things, you know, and we can get into that, you know, as we go forward, but whether you want to view it in some kind of geological sense or a occult sense, there's a lot going on when it comes to the themes of not only the terrain, but the creatures involved and also the kind of idea that I think, again, repeats itself uh, that pertains to subterranean things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really curious to me for anyone who's aware of my niche interests, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to read the article. In the original episode, I just had Serata read it and she read the whole article and then we did commentary at the end. Tonight, Allison's going to read it, and we're going to interrupt her and <laughs> add commentary as we go along. <laughs> the interrupter. <laughs> and I will mention that we are in a different location than normal, so we're a lot closer to the rabbit. In fact, she's right next to us, so you may hear bunny noises. You may hear us shuffling around and grabbing drinks and so forth. So, Also, the you know road noises are going to be here? Yeah. Closer to the road? Yeah. So, If we're lucky, <laughs> at the end of this, Tyler will send us whatever drawings he worked on while we were talking. Oh my God, it's true. I always, um, <laughs> it, it's a funny detail that certain friends of mine would know, but oftentimes when I'm on the phone, I will draw an illustration that's just kind of a stream of consciousness, and whatever comes out is whatever comes out. I love that. <laughs> All right, I found it. This is from what year? This is actually from 1892. So this is substantially after the fact, correct? No, I think this is around the time it happened, if I recall correctly. And what paper is it? It, This article was published in a bunch of different papers. Okay, so this appears in the Philadelphia Times, which is nowhere near the location. No, no, but it it appeared in a bunch of papers. Yeah, to my understanding, you're probably reading the one that's from August 21st, 1892. And it says that it wasn't so long ago that these people were, like, intrigued by the witch diggers. So I'm assuming, like... What does that mean, though? Like, I don't know how long after the fact. Like, is that a decade? Is that only like a couple years? But yeah, do you have a sense of what year it's supposed to have taken place? No, I because the article ends with them being in the poorhouse and and all that. Uh I assume it's, you know, somewhat recent to the article. Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, the unfortunate thing is that the 1890 census is the one that uh, burned and that no one has access to it. Uh, and that's the huh. one we really kind of need. Yeah. <laughs> so <Interesting>. um, <laughs> I have found some other things, which I will reveal later, but I'll yes. just start here yes. and like to also thank our friend Serata who initially read this with much more. Um, yeah. She actually did like Swiss accent. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just, you're she, not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. I can't do that. <laughs> so I'm just going to read this. On yes. My own. Yeah. This is called The Witch Tickers, the story of their strange monomania. Old Nick still lives there, one of the ill-fated Bischlers at large. Delusions drove them mad. So these are all like the kind of the headlines before the article proper. A terrible contest waged against witches by the owners of a farm in the wilder portion of Indiana. 
Their uncanny antics viewed by hundreds of people, the hairy creature that now inhabits the chasm where the brothers labored to find their enemies. Okay, so this is repeated from the Cincinnati Enquirer, so we're getting a little bit closer to the actual location. (laughs) Frank Rose, a farmer boy residing in the southeastern part of Jennings County, Indiana, visited a rosy-cheeked neighbor last Sunday evening. It was nearly midnight when he started on his return over stony hills and hollows. Though he was a bold youth, he became silent as he approached the lonely valley known as Rocky Ravine. When halfway through the tortuous cleft between the hills, a slight sound attracted his attention. On his right, near the top of the hillside, a curious figure was seen creeping from rock to rock and keeping well in the shadows. It carried something which gleamed brightly now and then as the moon's rays fell upon it. It came nearer and nearer the farmer, who had crouched down behind a clump of blackberry bushes, with a strange feeling of dread within him. The mysterious being, animal or man, approached until it reached the roadway within ten feet of the boy, when, with a bound, it sprang to the top of a huge boulder, where it crouched for a moment, in the full glare of the moon. Frank Rose gave one look back and then shut his eyes with a gasp of horror. The thing upon the rock was a man. But what a man. When Frank got home that night, he told a wonderful story of a vision he had seen upon the way of a creature which, though it walked on all fours and was covered with hair from head to foot, carried a gleaming axe and displayed other indications of being human. It was gaunt but muscular and had burning eyes that shone through long, tangled locks of hair. He had seen this thing but for a moment as it crouched upon a rock, then it leaped down on the other side, and he made his way out of the deserted valley as quickly as possible. Pause there. Are we allowed to drink every time we, yeah, hit, we hit like a Bigfoot? Sure, so, we yeah. go, so I can get like a, <laughs> a blackberry bush drink. You <laughs> <laughs> do need to maybe like a bingo card or something. Yeah, something. So I listened to the original episode as well. Yeah, And I have to say, in my defense, Soraya has framed me as this flesh and blood Bigfoot guy from the start that I changed over time after contact with Soraya. <laughs> this is episode four and I'm already going, there's something weird about this. There's something yeah, weird yeah, about yeah, this. For sure. That said, I'm also like trying to figure out how this is a Bigfoot. Right. And I'm like, well, so he, maybe the glint was his eyes. Maybe the glint was yeah, something yeah. else. You know, so I'm, I'm wrestling with this duality of, yeah. of like trying to st- sit with the flesh and blood Bigfoot thing, but also, recognizing something weird's going on here now i'm fully like all fours was a problem with me back then it's not i i, I think i've just come to enough bigfoot accounts where they dropped all fours i have no problem with that at all the axe is super interesting like a gleaming axe yeah like whatever this is is holding an axe it's covered in hair is it wearing any flannel? It doesn't mention. It, yeah, it doesn't mention. <laughs> well, 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 to me, to me, the detail that sticks out too is the the burning eyes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which I understand at this point in time, a lot of flesh and blood bigfoot people would go to eye shine. But keep in mind, this is something that is occurring at nighttime, as is. I don't know how much light would be available when I'm assuming the only kind of light this fellow likely has is maybe a lantern maybe um maybe but at this point you know we've come across these details where it seems like a lot of these reports and this is all across the board for various seemingly supernatural creatures is that their eyes don't just have a sort of eye shine but rather their eyes are literally glowing Mm -hmm. which is more or less a, a supernatural element that doesn't really track with the biological idea of what this thing is. Exactly. That's, yeah. it's what I've said several times, you know, no animal 
that I know of on the planet Earth has glowing eyes. But you know what does? Look back in folklore. Vampires, goblins, witches, this and that. You know, it's just demons. All these things have glowing eyes back in folklore. It's like I even come across stories of sea monsters that when sure. they emerge from the waters, they break the mm. waters and confront someone face to face. They have glowing eyes. You often hear that description where it's like, oh, they, they were liquid balls of fire or mm-hmm. they were embers, glowing embers in their eyes. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's very curious, very curious detail. The note about the gleaming axe paints for me a picture of like moonshine. Mm-hmm. Like, there's like a moon hanging in the sky and it's like reflecting off that axe. Yeah. I wonder if it was taking place during the summer. Like when would, oh, I'll ask John, when would the blackberry bushes be? In- <laughs> well, it's, it's so funny. I was so distracted by that because blackberries don't grow in bushes. They're, they're brambles and that bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> so wrong botanical terminology. Hey, yeah. If there were. Hold on a second. What's the difference between a bramble and a bush? So brambles grow on canes, whereas like there are, are bushy <laughs> bushes that I wouldn't refer to as canes. Is that okay. I, okay. All right. I think it's about how they self-propagate. Like your cane, your brambles grow. How a berry bramble propagates itself is that the tip weights down with berries, lands on the ground, and then grows new roots from that. Oh, okay. And so they kind of like leapfrog as they grow and spread. All right. Whereas a bush... It's not like a shrub, but it's a bush. It's more self-contained. More in a self-contained. Sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It just has or, a diff- different like growth pattern. Okay. But are blueberries, brambles, or are they bushes? Bushes. They're bushes. Okay. Yeah. But you could forgive a writer. For oh, absolutely. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. I'm not. I'm not. Now back to Allison's question. Blackberries. That's late summer. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, this so. article's from August, so maybe it didn't happen. Like, maybe this is a fairly. I think this part, the, the intro of the article, mm-hmm. because the rest of the article is kind of trying to explain this guy's encounter away. A bit of a and, flashback. And they relate this to the Bishlers where it may not be related at all, you know, other than the fact it's just something weird that happened in the area. Oh, well, like, I, somehow in my mind, I got the idea that he was coming back from their house for some reason. No, no. Oh, I think he, it's, this is unrelated person. It's, it's no, unrelated. He, was, he was going to see, what, a rosy-cheeked girl or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that detail. But, well, something that I think is important to clarify, which I don't think would be really clear on, say, like a cursory initially, like an, an initial listen to that first episode, is that everything it's detailing in this encounter as well as the ones after, are taking place after the entire story of the Witch Diggers, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting and important because it already shows that there is an aftermath where even when the totality of that story comes to a close, there is a continuation of these strange sightings in the area. So this article starts with these two sightings, the second of which you'll get to, And it's really curious to me that these even exist because it already shows that there is a continuation of this sort of thing. And they're only kind of relating it to this prior incident because it was so recent and and because it it had such a draw to public attention. So that I think is is really curious. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. Like, So the listener doesn't know yet or the reader doesn't know yet. At the beginning of this article, the Bischlers the family, the witch diggers that they call them, are in the poorhouse, except for one. You can proceed, else. Okay, so this uh, <laughs> picks up on Frank Rose. Young Rose's story created little agitation among the neighbors. The practical poo-pooed it. The superstitious added to it their list of ghost tales and inwardly resolved never again to be caught in the neighborhood of Rocky Ravine after nightfall. But the adventure was not to end so lightly. On the very next night, 
Monday evening. Henry Simon and William Downey, stock buyers living in another county, rode within a short distance of the Drury Valley when they were astonished to hear the reverberation of a succession of blows evidently made by some instrument of steel or iron. Should we stop the drink? <laughs> Does that count as a wood knock? Oh, you know, I didn't even put that together. Knocking sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good call, Allison. <laughs> yeah. So here we have some, yeah, here we have knocking sounds. They tied their horses and walked up the dark ravine until they arrived at a tremendous cavity, which had evidently been excavated by human hands. Twenty feet below in the darkness, someone was striking blow after blow upon the rocky bottom of the pit. What are you doing down there? shouted Simon. For answer, a stone came whizzing through the air, narrowly missing Downey's head. Stone throwing. Stone throwing. <laughs> I like your foley sounds. They're, they're nice, John. <laughs> a big hairy creature sprang out of the hole with a frightful yell and disappeared with surprising rapidity over the side of the hill, still carrying its steel tool, though running apparently upon four legs. So they're making the assumption, is this one of the Bishlers? Is this Nick hopping Th out of the... That's what they go on to say. Oh, that he's the wild But he's man. also covered in hair. Like whatever they're seeing is covered in... You know what oh, I mean? Like okay. that's not the way nature works no. like <laughs> the, the traders were stupefied with astonishment and lost no time in getting out of the neighborhood their story as related to several residents of the vicinity taken with that of the boy rose created much excitement and during the week more than one man paid a visit to rocky ravine several being satisfied with the glimpse of the wild man who was now believed to inhabit it there was little difficulty in establishing his probable identity as the country round about had not yet recovered from the agitation caused by the almost incredible actions of a family which formerly resided at the mouth of the ravine. The metal sound. I didn't even think of that as a knock, Allison. That, that's, I'm glad you said that. Before everything kicked off at Pandemonium, mm -hmm. and I did not have the recorder running, there was a big metal clang. It sounded like, and I've said this before, it sounded like somebody took a two-by-four and swung it into a guardrail mm. along the side of the road. It was so loud that Chad insisted in getting in his truck and driving around because he thought there was an accident. That had to be an accident. I didn't think it sounded like a car accident at all. I think it sounded like somebody whacking a guardrail with a two-by-four or like construction equipment around. Somebody hitting a piece of like a you know, front-end loader or something with a two-by-four. Lately, I've come to talk to other people about these weird Bigfoot incidents, and a lot of them talk about this sound of like metal crashing. The, like a metallic bang or metallic. Mm. So we have this, whatever came out of the hole is carrying a metal implement and they don't describe it in the second encounter, right? They just say he's carrying something, yes, some sir, kind of tool. Are, are we led, being led to believe that he's the person that Frank Rose saw initially? Is that their thrust? Of I mean, that it almost feels Cer like it, right? Yeah, it certainly has that feel to it. And yeah. It similarities. Well, I feel like this is something you could really dig into and have a lot of speculation on when we come to the conclusion of this story. I think it's one of the weirder elements that, you know, when you talk about the original episode, it's something that's not really dwelled upon. But I do find it very tragic and also beautiful in a haunting and occult fashion that, like, for some reason, the intuition of the people of this area are connecting the story of the Bishlers with this modern sighting, you know, post-incident, with this possibly being the spirit of Nick. Yeah. Which I find really, really strange. 
I feel like there's precedent for that kind of thing when it comes to various aspects of folklore where you have people that deal with the other or maybe go to this other place and their sort of spirits are seen kind of inhabiting that same element where it's like they are bound to the thing. Mm-hmm. They, you know, for all eternity, they're bound to the thing. There's the various sightings that you have of them. So I find it very curious that there's a sort of connection that places him as possibly becoming one of the very things that he was searching for. Mm, right. Yeah. But are, are you saying that you find it surprising that the locals would assume that that's who that was based on these, the tellings of these sightings? Well, not, not so much surprising because it makes sense to me when they, when they reference how seemingly, you know, close it is to when this occurred. Yeah. But what I do find strange that's not, stated clearly is when you really listen to all of this by the time they're in the poorhouse, right? It's never stated directly that for all intents and purposes, Nick Bishler technically, in my opinion, sounds like he becomes a missing person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is no technical sighting of him after he leaves that poorhouse. It's assumed that he goes back, right? I find it strange, like what I find shocking is that to the common man of that time, they're connecting these sightings with the possibility that this is Nick Bishler. As you guys have stated at this point in time in this episode, that like obviously nature doesn't work in this way, where you know you turn your back on society and you suddenly grow this like <laughs> inch-thick growth of hair over your body. However, without getting into the um, fine details, Tim, I know that at this point in time, there are references that would allude to this being something of a spirit-like nature mm-hmm. and, and things that can pertain to the human dead that are in connection with these kind of strange things. And I find it really fascinating. What I find surprising is that you're looking at this report through a very prosaic lens of the time where they're not questioning a supernatural element to it. They're questioning the physical element of an escaped kind of mental patient, right? Right. However, that mental patient is very much pertaining to these other strange aspects. They wouldn't have that lens to perceive it as. That's, to me, what I find fascinating is that this seems to track with the ghost narratives that we have, which pertain to certain aspects of folklore, and we see that repeating with this kind of tale that involves Nick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He certainly, I mean, at least the people see him as haunting the area still. Well, I'll tell you what just occurred to me or what came up for me in all that is that, and I know we haven't got to this part of the story yet, the reading is that toward the end of Nick's life in that place, he was just pounding away, digging these witches and that he was surrounded by the townspeople just watching hundreds of people just looking at this man sort of falling apart and being obsessed with this. And I have to imagine that that was such a bizarre thing for them to see in their community that those stories would get passed down and that legend would be like, Hey, did you see? Oh, okay. And so I'm wondering if that much, having that much energy and focus on this guy and what he was doing could give it almost like a Tulpa esque energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And are these sightings in this, this entity or person or, Bigfoot or whatever it is, 
somehow empowered by this, by the energy of the community itself. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sure. Yeah. This is witch cloud territory, which I'm, I'm yeah. quite comfortable going into. Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly uh, possible. Okay. So I think now is when we sort of start to get into the, the story of the, the witch diggers. Uh, of the Bichler family. Yes. The history of the witch diggers is so remarkable as to be almost beyond belief. It is the story of a peculiar monomania that affected one by one an entire family until all were subjects for the insane asylum. The family was made up originally of hard-headed, practical people and included three brothers who fought bravely in the Union Army during the Civil War. I would also like to add that these people are all of like Swiss-German persuasion, so mm-hmm. I understand this hard-headedness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I think John understands this. <laughs> yeah. These are our people. These are our people. Absolutely. That yeah. When you're doing genealogy, genealogical studies of where a lot of the people from Pennsylvania, Dutch area of Pennsylvania ended up, it's here or this area. Of Indiana. Kind of, kind of like the Ohio-Indiana oh, area. sure. So there's a lot of um, crossover between. So I, I feel a kinship with these hardworking, crazy people. <laughs> yeah, um, modern-day Amish populations there as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's very similar to sort of the background that a lot of us around here grew up with. A surprising feature of the entire affair is that though it attracted widespread attention locally for weeks, and though thousands of people visited Rocky Ravine to witness the remarkable conduct of its residents, nothing of the witch diggers has reached the public ear until now. This fact is partly accounted for by the location of the tragic events to be described below. A country as wild as any to be found in Indiana, though not many miles away from North Vernon, a thriving railroad center and the cultured and beautiful seat of Jennings County, Indiana. The sterile, stony country surrounding Rocky Ravine belongs to a section of Hoosierdom that has been the home of crime and tragedy for many years, which has hidden in its unfruitful bosom many dark secrets of the past. Here it was that the organized bands of horse thieves of southern Indiana had their gloomy retreats and passed their living booty from station to station among the hills south of the winding Muscatatak. Let's go with that. Yeah. Here it is that white capping was introduced as the only cure for prevailing lawlessness and where it was afterward abused until the whitecaps became almost as much an object of public odium as their victims. Here many things could and do occur that would shock or interest the public, but which are never heard of behind the confines of the dark country. This explains the general ignorance concerning the witch diggers whose history is as interesting as it is remarkable. Do you really think that this area is any more dark, rural, and spooky than any other part of America that was dark, rural, and spooky at the time? I don't know. I think of like uh, one of my favorite books, which they subsequently made into a movie called Wisconsin Death Trip, where Michael Leslie um, looked back at years and years of a particular town in Wisconsin and found mm-hmm. all of the crimes, the murders, the suicides, the tales of people going mad, horrible instances, and just compiled them along with pictures from the historical society into sort of this, this idea of, of what Victorian life was like in this, this area as it is in so many areas of the time. And it is not this sort of like, you know, life looks like this in all time periods. So is this area more spooky or less spooky than any other place? I don't know. This gets into, you know, the question I'm asked again and again, like, what is it about Pennsylvania? What is it about York County? The answer is, I don't know. And I used to say, put me any place and I'll find the same stuff. Yeah, that would be, that's still my suspicion that it's a matter of looking. Now, I don't know. I think there is something to certain places. The Bichler parents were honest, uncultured Swiss. I like to think of myself as the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Who came from the canton of Bern to this country many years ago. 
They brought with them two children, John and Susie, and others were born as the family moved westward and finally located on a farm three miles from Damascus, Columbiana County, Ohio. When the war broke out, three sons went away to fight for the Union. John and Steve in the 65th Ohio Infantry and Nick in the 115th Ohio Volunteers. Steve was only a boy of 14 and was killed at the Battle of Franklin. John was drowned in the Mississippi, while Nick, who had just reached his majority, came back alone to the farm in Ohio. The parents died soon after, and Nick became the protector of his elder sister Susan, still unmarried and likely to remain so, and a brother Sammy who had never been hardened with an alarming amount of gray tissue. <laughs> it's diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, okay. wonderful turn of phrase. <laughs> the three lived together, cultivating the little farm and making a comfortable subsistence until the spirit of unrest, which had been bred in Nick Bischler by his war experiences, led him to sell the old family homestead and moved to Indiana. He bought a farm of 40 acres, hilly, stony, and marked with deep chasms and ravines, which lay about four miles southwest of Butlerville, a small station on the Ohio and Maryland Railroad. This was 10 years or more ago, and the Bischler soon became known among the country folks around as honest, hardworking people, a type of respectable lower classes of Europe. Nick was a fine-looking man of middle age with a sturdy form and bright blue eyes that contrasted well with his black hair. His heavy mustache and military air made him an object of admiration among the fair sex, but he never paid any attention to the damsels of the neighborhood, seeming consistent to work day after day, along with his sister and simple-minded brother. As for Susan, she was never in question as a marriageable quantity. She was an eerie creature, looking just a witch herself, with her great staring gray eyes, hawk-bill nose, and capacious mouth, the only visible teeth of which were two false ones that were continually making their presence known by protruding beyond the shriveled lips of their wearer. Sammy was a small, dark man who rarely talked except to repeat what someone else might have said. The farm occupied by the Bischlers was a lonely place, lying some distance off the road and with no neighboring homes near the little frame shanty where the trio lived. About a quarter of a mile away from the house was a deep rocky cleft between high hills which is known as Rocky Ravine. The narrow zigzag valley was a gloomy enough place even in the daytime, and some ugly stories were told about it, but they were, for the most part, vague and ill-founded. Such was the Bischler family when they first came to the neighborhood and for years afterward. You have some um, genealogical information on the Bischlers. What they talk about, the three of them going off to war, is entirely correct. That is something that I was able to find. But when they talk about John drowning in the Mississippi, it's a little bit more dramatic than that. Yeah, yeah. No, we did mention yeah. this on the original episode, but yeah, let's let's get into but it. But he yeah. was um, one of the people that was presumably blown up when, when the Sultana exploded while leaving, um, they're leaving Andersonville, right? They, were, they, were, they, had, they, were, they had a lot of people from Andersonville, yeah. former POWs, and just heavily, I, what I read, it was more than three or four times overloaded beyond what it Yep, capacity. there were way more people yeah. on it than should be. There's questions about, like, the ship captain having taken, like, bribes and stuff and to get that many men on board. There's a lot, a lot of dark stuff about that disaster, which we, I said this in the original episode, and we should really dig into that and, like, do an episode on it. Yeah. On that itself. Yeah, he drowned, but he drowned because of the Sultana. Sure. It's a huge detail to just leave out. You know? yeah, and that's that, like the, the largest maritime tragedy in U.S. history. Yeah, it's massive. And then um, his other brother was killed at the Battle of Franklin. And um, it, actually, Nick went into the military a little bit. His brothers were there bef- in the Union Army before he was. Mm-hmm. I think that's why they're from the 65th and he's from a different. Um, yeah, they, they didn't all go into the same. No, but the two other brothers that passed away were together. Mm-hmm. So do you know how long Nick would have been in service? Uh, yeah, he actually, he didn't enlist a little bit later. So he was only in about a year. 
towards the end of the war, but it would have been sort of overlapping. I think his uh, muster end date was within a month or two of one of his brothers passing. So I don't know mm. if, if he knew right away or if that was the impetus for him to, uh, or if he was drafted or what I have to look at that a little bit. This is one of the more frustrating parts of the family is that I've found probably 15 different variances in their names. Wow. Yeah. And so I- it's like, it's imp- it's getting to be really impossible to exclude or include certain people in the search because mm-hmm. the name keeps changing over and over and over again. Yeah, it's there's so many different spellings. There's someone else who will get into it probably, you know, after this, mm-hmm. who's also a genealogist who has found the same thing. And she said, it's just so hard. This family is so hard to track down because of the, the different spellings. Yeah. And um, the the two brothers, are, I did find their military records. They're not under Bischler. And, um, then I think I'm pretty sure I found Nick's as well. And his name isn't even the same last name as the two of his brothers are listed under. So I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's a matter of a lot of times just people misunderstanding other people's accents. And, yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That's really strange. And, and the other thing that strikes me as interesting in these descriptions, you know, the, the war tragedies aside, which I think are also relevant in mm-hmm. a way, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you want to look at the psychology of a person. Oh, yeah. Like and what that can breed, them. yeah, and what that can breed in a real sense, you know, and that's something, you know, we can get into later. But this description, to me, what I find fascinating is that it really lays out the groundwork of explicitly stating, like, this is a very liminal family. Yes. These yeah. are people themselves who are on the outskirts. They're viewed as strange. And, you know, it, it doesn't take much to see that this is still the common pattern that you see amongst other people who experience paranormal phenomena, you know, mm-hmm. even up until the modern day and age, like people who are on the outskirts and don't really fit the mold. You're, you're strange people. You're weird. People are the ones who seem to be the most afflicted by these kinds of things. So I, I really love the descriptions that this article lays out because it kind of places them in that context very clearly, yeah. um, which, which I find fascinating uh, from a, you know, the perspective of studying this. Absolutely. And even he, he seems to be the one with, let, let's say, the most potential to get out of the situation, right? Because he's, he has potentially his full wits about him mm-hmm. and he's more handsome than obviously his sister who doesn't make the cut. She's, she's but, unmarriable. Yeah. Sure. I, I also think like the sheer amount of trauma that that family has endured, like lost both siblings in the war, parents are dead. He and his other siblings are like, Alone on this 40 acre lonely farm. Far away from home. Yeah. And I don't know why, like my brain keeps going to this place where they made a point to mention how he wasn't interested in the ladies in town. And so you have him and his like mentally challenged younger brother and then his sister. And I, it's almost like they're playing the maternal and paternal role in that mm-hmm. little threesome. And was there some strange sibling relationship? that crossed some lines there that made them a little even more insular from the community. Like a flowers in the attic kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's just, it, none of it paints a very good picture. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, no, they're getting by the best that they can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounded a little too Dukes of Hazzard. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they're making their way the only way they know how. <laughs> uh, it's just a little more than a little. <laughs> <laughs> What's the easiest choice you can make? 
Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Curious hallucination, which wrecked the minds of an entire family and set them upon the care of the world, was first manifested in Sammy, the youngest of the trio. One day Sammy was left alone in the solitary cabin, and when Nick returned, he found the poor fellow crouched down beneath the bed and staring immovably at one of the small windows of the structure. He had seen something awful. This much was obtained from him by much questioning, though Sammy, as a rule, confined his conversational efforts to a repetition of some other person's remarks. Something had come in through the window, but what it was and what it did or what became of it were questions that Sammy never answered, save for the vaguest possible manner. He soon ceased to talk about the matter, but it was noticed that he would never remain alone in the house again. He had no liking for the farm either, particularly avoiding the shadowy depths of Rocky Ravine, and he was often seen walking alone miles away from the dreary fields that were his home. Conversation with Sammy was never very enjoyable, and when in a sullen mood, as he was almost all the time now, he could not be induced to open his mouth even to reply to a simple salutation. The neighboring farmers paid little note to his eccentricities, (laughs) but would say, poor Sammy. He never was very smart. He's clean daft now. Months passed, and just as twilight was falling after a hot summer day, the uncanny form of Susan Bischler was seen at the residence of Thomas Spencer, a well-to-do farmer who was the nearest neighbor of the Swiss family. Her big eyes were wilder in appearance than ever before, while her shrunken form was trembling with excitement. I'm not doing the accent, so I'm just gonna... I never expected you to <laughs> What is it, Susan? asked Mr. Spencer. If you want to translate to uh, less awkward... Yeah, I think they're saying... I think she's saying they've got Nick. She whispered, looking about her fearfully before replying, They who... The witches. What did they do with him? inquired Mr. Spencer, who was somewhat puzzled by the woman's manner. I don't know. They come in through a window like monkeys and take poor Nick and choke him. Okay. <laughs> Hold on to that one. Yeah. I, I want everyone to take a note of that particular phrase <laughs> and remember it for the future. We're going to talk about it now, but I, you need to remember that specific thing because it's really important. So the, the what will come. So basically, this is the head of the household, and 
the sister is running to the neighboring farm, just basically saying something's got my brother. Yeah. Yep. They came in, monkeys came in through the window and are choking him. And the little brother's already, Sammy, Sammy. is his name Sammy? Mm-hmm. He's already said something has come through the window. Yeah. Something's happening. Yeah. And then she says, oh, poor Nick, they've got him. I'm afraid. While Susan was still talking, Nick came plodding up to the gate in his heavy boots, showing no indications of having any difficulty with the witches. He took his elder sister by the arm and started away without a word. Susan has seen some witches, said the neighbor. She was dreaming, replied Big Nick gruffly as he proceeded homeward, half dragging the woman with him, despite her protestations of fear. He was right. Susan had been dreaming, but it was a dream which he was fated to share before many weeks. Whether his sturdy common sense was not proof against the weirdness of his surroundings, or whether the belief in witches was a monomany that was born in the Bishlers, is a question that may puzzle the wisest heads. Certainly it is that Nick, the strongest of the trio in mind and body, himself fell a victim to the same superstitions that had worked such havoc in the minds of his relatives. So what I'm getting from that is often, even in modern times, there are certain people who don't want to talk about anything weird. And if their family members do, they'll just be like, like, come on, no, that didn't happen. You were dreaming. They were like, he, like, yeah. that's the feeling I'm getting from him. Like, he just didn't want to engage in this story with the neighbor, right? You don't want the neighbor to think you're crazy or you just like, yeah. maybe or you're- wonder about the, you know, it probably wouldn't take much to get somebody kicked out of where they lived in that time period. You don't really maybe, want to just- or, or maybe well, you're, well, yeah. you're trying to figure it out yourself and you're just like, no, 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 it's nothing, you know, and, and like, yeah. until you try to wrap your head around it. Go ahead, Tyler. Well, sorry. sorry. I was just going to say, well, it's also worth noting too, like what you're saying, Allison. At this point in time, like it would have been very easy to be like locked up in mm-hmm. an asylum for saying this kind of thing. Like we have the luxury of being able to say the kinds of stuff we do now. It wasn't quite the case back then, which I think is interesting. But what raises more questions for me, which is one of those things that's like, oh man, if only we could talk to these people, is like, who knows what else unfolded? You know, if if this is to be believed. It seems to me there's these great gaps between this incident that occurs with Nick and between what his sister sees, how he somehow becomes unscathed and returns. Like, what did he really see? You know, there's so much that mm-hmm. there's so much that goes unspoken. Or is that all we can do is speculate about, you know, if that actually happened, of course. And I'm wondering too, is he the event that returned from the war as a different person and he's become the monster? I mean, yeah, like he's the monster while he's supposedly the the sanest of the three of them. It's it's hard to separate what we would call post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. today from being bound up in in all of this. Right. Like the Civil War wasn't a pretty war. Not that any war is, Mm -hmm. you know, but a lot of the hermits I write about. Yeah. They're Civil War. Yeah. And and I often wonder if they just are like, I'm out. No more around people. Yeah. Uh -uh. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th- that may indeed play. But the, here's the, here's where the great divide happens. Monkeys aren't usually part of other people's. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> monkeys are the part where we we take the another road. <laughs> yeah. Did they get to the part where they said monkeys with human heads yet? Is, did she? No, no. That's the next. Okay. All right. The Let's fact was first discovered while Susan was telling a passing farmer how strange women with long faces and arms, hatless and barefoot glided up to the frame shanty and peered through the windows, how monkeys with human heads entered the door, 
and upset the tables and chairs, and how monstrous snakes crawled into the little yard and spat great wads of venom at the weather-beaten boards of the cabin, and how a thousand other inexplicable events were taking place night and day on the poor little 40-acre farm where the Bishlers were trying so hard to make a living. All witches, repeated Susan, in her dismal, whining voices. The women, the monkeys, the snakes, everything. All witches. All witches. Why don't you tell your sister that she's mistaken, Nick? asked the farmer impatiently. Maybe she's right, returned Nick gloomily as he strode away. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I even mentioned the big snake in the original discussion. I don't think it was talked about, but it was in the article. Yeah, yeah. So giant snakes are are a big thing in these old wild man reports. They're often mentioned along with wild men. Yeah. I think I knew that. Yeah. We'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so saw a wild man, and I guess we can believe that because, you know, they saw a giant snake on that mountain, you know, last year or something like that. Huh. So, Are they implying that it's the same thing, that the person is the giant snake, or just that they're... No, just they're just noting sightings of, like, weird things in mm. the same place, I think. It's funny, too, because, like, there's even locations near Western PA that I, I live next to that are have connections to Bigfoot reports. And also areas of distress, you know, when it comes to people that also have rumors of giant snakes. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that does repeat, like Tim said, which I find interesting. That is a detail that's kind of glanced over in that first episode. It's, it's mentioned in the article, but it is one of those things that has crossover, you know, to kind of stranger ideas, yeah. which I find interesting when it comes to the various forms that you find these kinds of phenomena can take. And what that represents, you know, on some kind of symbolic level, it, it is a curious detail. Say yeah. least. And we have the women he mentioned, which is like classic women in white kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I had not written where the footprints end at that point. Right. I had not made the Perkta connection. I was fascinated by it. I was talking about the Sasquatch Chronicles episode, which led me down that road to eventually make that connection. But now... Post where the footprints end, I hear these witchy women with yeah. the hairy Bigfoot things. I'm like, yeah, check that box. <laughs> like, oh, oh, yeah, they go together like peanut butter and chocolate. Well, the, the description of the women I find curious, too, where in the sense that she says that they have long faces and arms. Yeah, long arms. Um, yeah. Those long arms are a detail that you see all across the board with various forms of these things, whether they be descriptions of Bigfoot. If you look at witness sketches, say, in conjunction to the Hopkinsville goblins and all manner of monster, a lot of them exhibit these kind of long arms that you mm-hmm. often hang down to the knees. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's cool and curious to see like this description of these strange women, which I also feel places this idea of witches, say, in some symbolic sense, you know, the wild women this idea that these things are witches, to actually have these sightings that I, you know, if you were to look at it through a different lens, the most witch-like description comes from this thing that's glanced over where they're seeing these strange women floating up to the windows, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's like, is that connecting them to the same thing? You know, are they transfiguring themselves to look like some kind of beast? Are the beasts something separate? Where does that fall in with the snakes? You know, you just have this whole plethora of these various phenomena presenting themselves. It just has all this precedent, right? You know, to other supernatural events, and and I think it's so relevant. It's so relevant to everything that's unfolding here. If it didn't jive so well with other paranormal accounts, you would be like, "Oh, they're just crazy." 
but it's right. It's it resonates so well with so many of these other accounts. That's the thing that makes a story gold to me. Yeah. Is there any room to talk about what could potentially be happening that might have a more? Could there be some sort of like? Are they eating the lead? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, I mean, is there are the, is there potential for contaminated meat, water? Um, is that why they're calling it a, like a monomania, right? Because all three of the Bischlers start having the same symptomatology. If, if this isn't something external and quote unquote real, as real as these things can be, yeah. What it, what could they be experiencing? They're all in well, agreement in their insanity. If, yeah, if, yeah. If that's the good case. Well, this is one of the more interesting details of the totality of this case, though. And, and it is something like that I think is a valid concern. I think when you look at this whole thing and you look at the descriptions of the family, I think it, it would be very easy to project and, and assume, even rationally, that maybe some form of mental ailment runs through the family. You already have some kind of genetic predisposition, it would seem, in yeah. one of the brothers. You have this sister who is already known to be very eccentric and strange. And even though, yeah, on the surface, there's descriptions of this other brother, Nick, who seems to have his head on straight. You know, it doesn't exclude the fact that there might actually be, you know, a family history of something that wasn't very well documented or known for that era. So this whole thing is convoluted in the sense where I think it would be very easy to look at this and rationalize it away as a family that is afflicted by some form of mental illness. And that, who knows, maybe that's true. But with that all being said, I don't think that makes it mutually exclusive right. to having encounters with strangeness, you know, and, and I think someone could make an argument on that end as well. You know, we've already stated, like, these are very off-the-grid, seemingly liminal people, and those kinds of people seem to breed phenomena. I think that's the fun, you know, if that's even a word one should use when looking at this case. It's a puzzle. And you could go back and forth all day, you know, assessing, you know, is there something wrong with these people genuinely? Are they afflicted by some kind of ailment? Is it something in the water, you know, so to speak? But I don't know. You know, it's one of those things. That it kind of puts a more mysterious spin on it where there's nothing clear about what's happening here. But in between, there's these hallmarks that are seemingly supported by other precedents when it comes to supernatural phenomena. And it's, right. it's quite a mystery. Well, also, here's the thing. We know something the audience doesn't know that I'm not revealing right now, which, <laughs> which lends to this not being in their heads exclusively. Right. Let's put it that way. All right. Ready to proceed. Mm-hmm. It was not long before the superstition of the Bischlers was productive of astonishing and even dangerous results. The phases of the disease, which finally drove every one of them stark mad on the subject of witches, cannot be described as their farm lay off the highways and no one cared to visit the house whose own residence had given it anything but a good name. Susan, now a veritable old hag with flaming eyes in which no spark of reason shone, came to a neighbor's house at long intervals, always gibbering, about the witches which infested her home. Sammy wandered about as usual, but nothing could induce him to speak. Big Nick was seldom seen, and then but for a moment, as he hastened on his way over the hills, he called his own. 
Nick seemed to be always in a hurry now. He was thinner, too, and his lowering brow was wrinkled with some trouble of which he spoke to no one. Indeed, he avoided everybody outside of his own family, and his surly replies to civil interrogations soon gave him the solitude he desired, for Nick was powerful, and his eyes glittered with an unnatural, dangerous light at times. A hunter was toiling along the rough slope of one of the hills that encircles Rocky Ravine one day when he saw two men working in the bottom of the chasm. The larger of the two was wielding an axe with tremendous vigor, while the other was using a shovel with untiring energy. Nearby, sitting on a rock, was a woman who was watching the laboring men with intense interest. For the life of him, to use his own expression, the hunter couldn't see what the men were working at, and he stumbled down the hill to satisfy his curiosity in this respect. His coming was unnoticed by the three people below, and the men kept on working as if their lives depended upon it, while the woman's eyes never left them. The axe was falling on rock, and now and then the men would lift up a great slab from the bottom of the hollow and carry it out of the cavity, which was ten or twelve feet deep. The hunter became more curious than ever, and after repeated questioning, the woman turned and said, The witches are under the rocks. Mm. Wow. This is not at this time, but moving forward in time. One of the questions I ask people on Bigfoot investigations, on paranormal investigations in general, where are they digging in the ground around here? Mm -hmm. And almost invariably, there's something. There's a quarry. There's a, there's a mine. There's this. There's that. Digging in the ground, to me, has something to do with this stuff. Like there's something about it. I can't think of a time where somebody said, no, it doesn't happen around here. This detail more than any other in this case obviously pertains to my very niche area <laughs> of interest. And not to drop a bombshell on you so soon, Tim, mm -hmm. but something that I think is well worth bringing up in regards to this case. And, and I'm glad that you brought the subject up first when it when it comes to your speculation of these stories of where people are digging. As I've heard you state before numerous times, there seems to be this pattern where whether an area or not has actual or, or rather factual tales of, say, something like buried treasure, or if there's something people are seeking within the earth, the area seems to produce supernatural phenomena of some sort as some kind of mechanism. And what I think is curious is like, you obviously have the same actions being taken up by this family. They're partaking in the act of digging. And what I find interesting about this repeating pattern that I'd like to bring up in this case is that there actually is a historical precedent where human beings often have encounters with the other through the intentional act of making packs with spirits to allow them to dig into the earth and find treasure. Mm -hmm. I don't know how well versed you are in this, Tim, but there are plenty of examples, you know, when you look at this through an occult lens, there's a great history of people incorporating, say, magical texts like grimoires to summon various sorts of spirits, whether they be demons, angels, fairies, the generalized terminology of nature spirits as a whole, 
to aid in the seeking of buried treasure. Mm -hmm. And there are examples where you have the same phenomena presenting itself. You know, so for instance, I don't know if you've ever come across or have heard about the account of the Yana tragedy of Christmas Eve. I'm not sure. No, no. So this occurred over 300 years ago in 715 in Germany where there were these three men, four men technically, that were involved in one of these excursions of using a grimoire to summon a spirit to help them find buried treasure. And what's interesting is the grimoire in question was referred to as the Helenswang, which, interestingly enough, if you were to take the German and translate it to English, means infernal compulsion. No. <laughs> or the corrosion of hell. <laughs> so what happened, and I think you're really going to find this beginning interesting. The way this began is there was a vineyard owner who, looking out over his vineyard on moonless nights, would see a woman in white. Oh, wow. Who was glowing. And she would walk back and forth in an area of this vineyard, the specific area. And he took this as a sign that there was buried treasure in the area because these women in white at this point were associated as treasure-bearing spirits. Mm -hmm. So he incorporated and employed three other men to help him with this idea that they could find treasure. One of the men was in possession of the Helensvang, which is this Faustian grimoire that gives you instruction of how you can summon specific demons to help aid in the discovery of these hidden burials. Well, as the story goes, these three men are placed inside of this small hut that's outside of the home. The owner, who's the owner of the vineyard, he doesn't partake in the ritual. He locks himself inside, closes up his doors while these three men partake of this elaborate ritual to summon this thing to help them find this. Well, as it turns out, the morning comes. The owner doesn't hear anything from them. He enters this small shack of sorts and finds two of the men to be dead and the other one unconscious, all of them bearing red marks across their body. When the man comes to, he claims that during the incantation of one of these spells, he couldn't finish it like he was hypnotized, and he blacks out. He ends up going on trial. The owner and this gentleman get exiled from the country, basically. But it has all these hallmarks, this, this strange, like, compul you know, if this is to be believed, this alleged account, you have this compulsion that's in people to dig. And this repeats itself throughout history. There, there's different examples of this. This is just one of them that involves, like, you know, an explicit use of a grimoire. But this also leads into like the modern day and age. You have stories of compulsion where people feel the need to dig. You know, there's even a story that I believe may be ongoing. I'm not quite certain of this. The last I remember hearing about this was back in 2016. There was a 69-year-old gentleman by the name of Santiago Sanchez, who lives in El Salvador, who for the past 18 years... It would be 26 years now. He would be around 77 years old now. 
he was told by God to dig a tunnel. Oh, yeah. Did you tell me about it? You must have told me about this before. I believe I, I did. Yeah, yeah, I believe yeah, I did. Yeah. He wasn't given a reason. He himself claims he doesn't know the reason. But for the last 26 years, if this gentleman does happen to still be alive, he has been digging this tunnel, and he doesn't understand why. And he seemingly has this kind of supernatural vigor and strength to go about this. In fact, there were reporters who have gone to this guy's tunnel and interviewed him and followed him back into his dig. And it goes for so long that the air quality became so bad, everyone had to leave hmm. except for him. Hmm. And I find that detail in particular very strange. They, they started experiencing these respiratory problems. So nobody actually knows how long this tunnel goes. And he was quoted as saying, only I am allowed to go to the end because I am God's tunnel digger. Well, Nobody else well, is allowed to go there. Wow. And so <laughs> there's this mystery. So the only reason I bring this case up is the fact that, like, I, I don't think Ellison has reached it yet. And I'm sorry <laughs> for maybe jumping the gun on that. But they talk about how they're laboring with this almost supernatural strength. Mm -hmm. They're... Yeah. They're living in the quarry. They're sleeping in the quarry and they're going all day and all night with a strength that they can't really rationalize. And you still see examples of this. Now, listen, I'm not going to say it was God <laughs> that <laughs> told him to dig this tunnel, but there are modern examples of this sort of compulsion that people have and this relationship that people have to digging and encountering supernatural beings along the way with those compulsions and i can't help but think that this is just another case that exhibits all of these traits but anyhow i, I don't mean to drone on oh no on, no but... no i think digging <laughs> digging is a very important part of this that you know instinctively i think i probably picked up on some of that in the original but it did not become as important or it was not then as important as it has become, let's say, where I've just been like, whoa, this is like, people are always digging into the ground when this stuff happens. Well, it's funny, too, because when it comes to this modern case of Santiago, he also said he received another uh, kind of vision or message from God, which promised him a gift when he completes his task. Mm -hmm. But even that is vague. So. You know, you could look at this as a sort of pursuit of treasure. And, and that's what I find what's strange with the Bischler family incident is that you don't necessarily have this narrative of like, oh, they set out intentionally to find treasure and deal with these spirits that, you know, pertain to it. But it almost seems like the treasure they're seeking is the things themselves. So right. it almost like creates a self-perpetuating loop mm -hmm. where they're being presented by something something is leading them and bringing them into this similar compulsion that we see present itself in people that dabble in these things, but it kind of is never ending. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it's, I, it's very interesting. When I talk about buried treasure theory, I often mention that sometimes the buried treasure is the creatures, you know, sometimes that's the treasure, right? Or is it peace of mind? It seems like they're not searching for more witches. 
They're trying to get rid of the witches, aren't they? Yeah, sure. by, by searching for them. I think they're digging, <laughs> that's where they find them. <laughs> well, yeah. well, I think, and, and that's an important distinction, too, and I'm glad you brought it up, Tim, in the sense that, like, treasure has a broad term, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't have to equate to physical gems and coins. You know, I think the treasure that people seek varies and and you can very much see that duality when you look at discussions pertaining to alchemical pursuits you mm -hmm. know where you have things like the philosopher's stone where it's like are the alchemists really seeking gold or the transmutation of gold or is it something more inward um right. as pertaining to the soul but either which way you have some kind of pursuit and you have a desire in this family to find something and something is presenting itself in between all of that. And I find it very strange. The three Bishlers now had but one thought, one occupation. Their days and nights were spent in hunting witches. The frame shanty was deserted, or rather surrendered, to the eerie enemies of the family. The two brothers and the sister remained in Rocky Ravine all the time, waging furious war against the witches. Nick somehow became impressed with the belief that the Stony Valley was the chief home of the unfriendly spirits, and as he was the leading spirit of the trio, the Bishlers remained constantly in the chasm, sleeping but little and then on the bare rocks. The farm was entirely neglected. A calf died of starvation. The Bishlers said that the witches had killed it. A horse went the way of all earthly beings, and the Bishlers killed all their cattle for fear that that would breed more witches. A half-starved hen made its way to the ravine in search of food, and the Bishlers set upon it with an axe and club and hung the mangled remains to a tree as a warning to other witches. <laughs> A big green frog happened to leap into the hole where the men were working. They beat and chopped it into a thousand bits and added the few pieces of it that could be found to their trophies. Susan gathered a wagon load of switches, and with these the Bishlers occasionally massacred a witch in the shape of a luckless bird or a butterfly or a snake or a bug. They kept tab on all of the slain witches by sticking pegs in the earth on a level spot a few yards from the seat of their labors, and here, after a successful battle with the common enemy, the three lunatics would gather, dancing around the sticks and screaming with laughter. They even sang of their triumphs at times, a monotonous chant telling of the number killed and threatening more dire results in the next engagement. Their trophies of victory increased until they had a large collection made up of the carcasses of birds and beasts and many inanimate objects. These relics would have been laughable had it not been for the terrible earnestness of the people who had gathered them. For three weeks, the Bishlers lived in the ravine, working with frenzied energy and hardly stopping, even to eat. The story of the hunter was soon noised about, and crowds of people came to witness the work of the witch diggers. Strange to say, no effort was made to check the deluded wretches from their fruitless labors, though they were rapidly approaching the stage of utter exhaustion. During this period, the Bishler boys, with only one axe, a pick, and shovel for tools, dug a trench 75 feet in length in front 15 to 25 feet deep, down through the rocks, which have but a shallow coating of earth. Then the two men worked in a zigzag manner, always attacking a rock, no matter how large, whenever they could find one. They removed boulders from the mammoth trench that ten men would find trouble handling, and the brothers seemed gifted with superhuman strength as well as energy, and they continued to dig long after they had struck water, 
For days, they stood hip-deep in the pool until their ragged trousers rotted away, leaving only the trunks. And whenever they removed a particularly large rock, they would find a witch, sometimes three or four, but after killing them, more of the creatures could be heard further down. It is averred by the best citizens of the locality that Nick Bishler worked for nearly two weeks without sleeping and without sitting down, and the others building a fire by night in the light of which he threw his relentless axe. The crowd kept increasing until it was not unusual to see thousands of people on the surrounding hillsides watching the labors of the poor wretches in the ravine, who did not even seem aware of the attention they were receiving. The Bishlers, in fact, became a great attraction, like a circus or a county fair for the people for miles around, and to none of the visitors did it occur to them that the miserable maniacs should be placed in, in confinement before they killed themselves. The story of the remarkable occurrences of Rocky Ravine finally reached North Vernon, and Mayor W.S. Prather, Attorney W.M. Fitzgerald, and Dr. E.W. Bantz drove to the seat of war one Sunday. On the next day, the Bishlers were prisoners on charges of lunacy. It was full time for such action. Poor Nick Bishler was nothing more than a living skeleton being reduced from a weight of 160 pounds to half as much. He was so weak that but few more strokes were left in his once powerful arms, and the enforced quiet after such excessive labors plunged him into a stupor of exhaustion from which it was seen that he would never be aroused. Sammy was but little better, for he had done his utmost to bail the water out of the great trench, and might have succeeded had the perverse liquid not run back in as fast as he threw it out. Susan's wiry form seemed little injured by her long labor. Nick was violently insane, and he was sent to the state asylum in Indianapolis, but was returned to the Jennings County Poor Farm, where Susan and Sammy already were, but Nick did not remain. After a few hours' stay, he walked out of the infirmary unobserved and escaped into the tangled forests of the surrounding hills. And now comes the question, which is interesting the people residing in the vicinity of Rocky Ravine. Who is the wild man of the valley? Is it Nick Bishler in person, or his shade returned to earth to finish the labor of driving the witches from the 40-acre farm? The latter theory is one that few intelligent people will entertain for a moment, and unless one disbelieves the stories of credible witnesses, it is forced to the opinion that the poor maniac has sought once more the scene of his remarkable labors. How he subsists and where he hides during the day can only be imagined. The rocky fastness of this portion of Indiana would cover an army of men, however, and poor Nick if it is indeed he, seems to fear recapture almost as much as he feared the witches, and only by night can his wild, grizzled figure be seen stealing toward the trench where the witches live. The mystery of the valley cannot long remain one, as the place seems to have a terrible fascination for the wild creature who visits it, and his capture is almost certain. In company with Dr. Fraser, the jovial station agent of North Vernon, who has taken a peculiar interest in the strange adventures of the witch diggers, your correspondent visited the county poor farm, where Susan and Sammy Bishler live. Susan was found in her own little room complaining of rheumatism. It is the witches, she said in a commonplace tone. <laughs> so they still bother you? Oh, yes, yes, they come in all the time, and I can't get rid of them. Nick's run away. Where to, Susie? Back to the old place. He's digging there, I think. Why do you think so? Oh, he didn't kill them all. And he ran back. He didn't kill them. He ran away. So he said he was going back. Outside of her superstition, old Susan is very intelligent, and she told the history of her family in a very entertaining manner. Sammy was seen too, but after offering to shake hands with the visitor, he changed his mind and drew back to strike him. Witch, witch, he shouted. He thinks you're a witch. He thinks you're a witch, repeated Sammy, parrot-like, and still gazing at the newcomer with frightened eyes. 
The farm where the witch diggers lived is now occupied by Charles Hale, a prosperous farmer who is the father of Professor Tyson's manager. The old shanty where the Bishlers first saw their sinister enemies retained the reputation of being haunted, given it by its owners until very recently, when one night it went up in flames and smoke. Nothing remains as, as, as evidence of the events recorded above except the mighty trench in Rocky Ravine, the broken boulders, and the other debris incident to the search for the witches. When they left the house, they said they left it to the whatever was haunting them or whatever. They, yeah. yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. Like they just, I've heard that in a couple more modern, not like not super modern, a couple more modern Bigfoot things where the, they were so haunted by the creatures that they just pieced out. People are like, nope, I'm done. Mm. And you they, can have it. And they just left their house. Yeah. So that's interesting. I'm right now doing really, really heavy research on the Garbondal apparitions. And these four seers in Spain in the 1960s had apparitions almost nightly, daily and nightly, sometimes multiple times a day. Sometimes they would go on for hours and hours and hours. They would run. They would get the calls and they would run to these apparitions. It's four in the morning. People couldn't keep up with them. Their parents were completely exhausted. Their families were completely exhausted. Their families were just done, you know, because they were trying to, these are young, young women. They were like mm -hmm. 10 years old. Mm -hmm. They're trying to make sure they're okay. And, and they're running after them and stuff. They said the girls had all the energy in the world and they could be up all night with these apparitions and just go right to school and, and do their work. And they had no ill effects whatsoever. They like that. These are the doctors that observed them. They had no ill effects whatsoever. The idea that, that the Bichlers manifested almost superhuman strength. Again, these visionaries in this incident, they were little girls. Grown men couldn't pick them up. Grown men couldn't move their arms. I was telling Allison about one of the incidents. They would go into these ecstasies, into these trances. At one point, she was changing a light bulb in, uh, or unscrewing a light bulb. They didn't have a light switch. It's a very rural place in Spain. Okay. They didn't have a light switch. She's unscrewing the light bulb to try to, you know, to uh, turn the light sure, off. Sure, sure. Right? And she goes into ecstasy with her arm up, holding the light bulb. First of all, the light bulb was super hot. And they're like, she's going to burn her hand off. Mm. She suffered no burns. She's sitting there holding the light bulb. They couldn't move her. Mm. They could not move her. Grown men, her own father could not move her off of that light bulb. They had to get one of the other seers to come. Somehow the other seers, even though they were other young girls, could move them when they weren't in, you know, the, the one that wasn't in ecstasy, wasn't in trance, could move the one that were in trance when no grown men could. They could pick them up. Grown men couldn't pick them up. They could not lift these girls. So Brother Richard often says that, you know, whether this is coming through on the good side or the or this quote-unquote bad side right. or, or anywhere in between, these things are using the same channels. They manifest in the same way. And that's what I'm reminded of when they're like, how are they able to do this? How are they able to just be yeah. in this trench and dig and dig and dig and lift these boulders that no one else could lift? That's what I'm reminded of. Like, how did they get them out of there? That's what I was like. What what, what was that day like when they showed up and took them to a month? <laughs> yeah. To the asylum. Yeah. As another note, there are records for the Jennings County um, Poorhouse, the asylum. Mm -hmm. And I looked through all of the records and I did not find anybody that would have fit. No Bishlers. No, I look for anything with their first names. Like I thought that we had found. Oh, that's interesting. I thought we had found um, Susan and and Sammy. I thought we had found them before, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe. Uh, if we did, I don't know where we found them. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, we found the well, in other stories. We found records from poor houses or asylum records, but I don't. Mm -hmm. 
I cannot find them. And the other thing is that maybe they were only there for a short period of time and they were at another asylum that might have better records. These, these were, you know, 1890s mental health facilities, you know, Mm -hmm. not really. I'm I'm also (laughs) reminded by, remember the guy, another guy who'd lived in a ditch over in Hanover, dug himself a ditch and lived in a ditch and he was (laughs) sent to the poorhouse. And what did it say? His diagnosis, troubled by ghosts. Yeah, that was his diagnosis. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 I think that was a really great comparison, Tim, you know, when you talked about these girls and that, again, that presence of kind of a, a supernatural strength or, or an endurance, uh, that's something that you see commonly through a, a lot of, you know, different spirit-like activity, you know, communication with the other, whatever that is. Not super common, not so common that, you know, you have like your, your regular everyday man, but it happens. There seems to be accounts of this kind of vigor that people have that is unshakable. Mm-hmm. There's also like lots of cultures that part of their religious practices and origin stories, etc., have aspects of like digging into the ground and going underground as part of their worship and connecting with the creator. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's something there. There's but, something. Yeah. The idea that they almost had like these rituals of like getting some witches, putting them on sticks, like what presumably as like a deterrent for other people or other witches and then dancing them around. I find so dark, like that part. Super dark. Yeah. It just, it just seems so like, like they were just so in themselves at that point and just, it was just no outside influence at all. And they're just feeding into each other and they're just killing anything that moved. It just seems so dark and like hopeless in, in a way. It's like they're trapped inside their yeah their own bubble. It's mm-hmm. like they're in this like other place, almost like another dimension of sorts. And yeah. I, I find that curious, but I also feel like that speaks to this idea. You know, if you were to relate this to ideas of say fairy lore, which also predominantly you know occur underground mm-hmm. in many cases, you often hear about these stories of glamour. You know where mundane everyday objects take on some other form yeah you know where yeah. like to most onlookers they'll seem like a mundane object but to the person that's either afflicted by the glamour or can't see it for that you know they see something entirely different mm-hmm. and we see that present in this where it mentions not only are they doing this to small animals whether it be a frog you know they, they make mention of one of their chickens which came by looking for food they dismember this chicken but they also make mention of just putting objects as well like inanimate objects and also believing that these are these witches Mm -hmm. that they're looking for so it's interesting because it paints this portrait that not only are these people afflicted by this compulsion to dig and seek this thing but the thing itself if you were to strictly view it through a truthful supernatural lens also is seemingly making them see what they want to see in mm-hmm. everything. Meanwhile, they're kind of trapped in this bubble without any external influence. You right. know, all these yeah. onlookers, they're just trapped in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me that they weren't, you know, they were basically assigning witch to anything that moved, basically. Mm-hmm. And yet they didn't seem to assign that to the onlookers or other humans. And that's another thing. When these girls would go be in these ecstasies, they could see each other. Mm. And none of the crowd, because there were great crowds came, because, you know, they said they're, they're seeing the Virgin Mary. So, they, you know, thousands of people show up in this little town in Spain. They couldn't see anybody else. They said when they were in trance, they saw the apparition and they saw each other. Interesting. And no one else, no one else. 
Oh, that's a really interesting detail. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I did this on the original show. This is from 1891, so right around the same time. This, this is would just be maybe a year before. Monday, April 6, 1891. This is from the Pittsburgh Dispatch. Strange discovery made in a cave by a frightened Hoosier, Columbus, Indiana, April 5th. Years ago, a man named Baines claimed to have discovered a wild man in a cave near Vernon, whom he described as covered with a growth of hair. But he was ridiculed so much over his story that he could never disclose the location of the cave. Recently, Alexander Shepard and a friend from Vernon, while strolling through the hills in that vicinity, discovered the opening of a cave and providing themselves with a lantern. They explored the interior until they found themselves confronted with a form resembling that of a gorilla or wild man covered with a rough coat of brown hair. The strange creature looked at them for a second and then ambled off, and the gentlemen were too much alarmed to follow. While retracing their steps, the explorers found a storeroom, partly filled with potatoes, corn, and wheat, with bones of fowls, etc. Farmers in the vicinity have frequently complained about the loss of farm product, and it is believed that a clue has been found to the thievery. A party is forming to explore the cave and find out something more about its strange inhabitants. Columbus is about 30 miles away huh. from from that. Um, is there a follow-up to that article? No. no that's, that's, <laughs> that article ends with them <laughs> deciding to go find it. That's the only one. This is about a real gorilla. This is another article, but it's interesting because it's in Butlerville, and they said this was Butlerville. They were four miles south of Butlerville. Yeah. They, they know. Carried off a boy, an escaped gorilla recaptured with much difficulty. This is from the San Francisco Chronicle October 23rd, 1894. So again, right around the same time, but after. Mm -hmm. As the Hall Circus was preparing the opening of the sideshow at Butlerville, Indiana recently, the big gorilla made his escape. While his keeper was feeding him, he sprang against the cage door and in an instant was out. The keeper was overpowered by the monster, which ran out on the grounds and picking up a small boy made for the woods. A big crowd was soon in pursuit with guns, clubs, and dogs. And when the beast was overtaken, no one dared to shoot for fear of killing the child. Two bulldogs were set on the gorilla, one of which he killed almost instantly. The other was so frightened that he could not be induced to go near him. By this time, his keeper succeeded in getting hold of his chain. Another threw a strong rope over his head, and he was overpowered and safely lodged in his cage. Aside from a few scratches, the boy was not injured. Coco Mongo, the gorilla, when the boy was taken near the cage again, after he was in confinement, made all kinds of faces and antics as if to explain his fondness for the boy. Hmm. Now, I did not look up if Coco Mongo was a real... There weren't many gorillas in the United States at that time, as I've said previously. Which circus was it? The Hall Circus. Wow. Hmm. Huh. Just, what an incredible story, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, super interesting. Action, action packed. Yeah. That, <laughs> if true, that it occurred so close. Huh. Allison. But yeah, they're from Evansville. So they're... That's Indiana, right? The question then is, did they have a gorilla named Coco Mongo? Well, well, something else that's interesting to note, too, is in your original episode, I remember you bringing up a different account as well, or at least they they mentioned it in passing in conjunction to the one with the storage room, where they also believe that a nearby cavern in Trimble County, Kentucky, which is on this border, was also believed to have a similar creature, and I believe they related it 
to possibly be in the same one. Mm. I couldn't find and, that that article that I read. I don't. Oh, have, that's interesting. Yeah, I, the article I read with the creature in the cave appears to be talking about the same thing that I mentioned on the other episode. But yeah, I couldn't find the original article. Missing evidence. Yeah, missing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what I find curious too, like in between the lines of that as well, which I think is worth mentioning here on this episode, just to get it out of the way, is the fact that all these stories do take place around a borderland, mm-hmm. which, I don't know, in, in my research, I tend to find fascination in border areas because it seems like borders, even on some symbolic level, seem to promote paranormal phenomena. Oh, you know, it's yeah. that kind of liminal state. There so I, I, I do find it interesting that you have such a close connection to both Indiana and Kentucky. It's all kind of uh, a conglomerate of all those areas, as well as the kind of limestone that those states share. Mm-hmm. Um, also come from a similar period of time, which is interesting when you look at it through a geological lens. But on top of that, you know, if we're just going to make a note of like the locations involved here, uh, I do find it interesting as well that when you look at incidents where people's households are seemingly overtaken by the other or they have these encounters only 77 miles away almost in a straight shot south you have hopkinsville kentucky Mm -hmm. which is the the site of the hopkinsville goblin encounter where you very much had creatures looking in people's windows um, and and things Mm -hmm. of that nature so it's just a curious area all across the board when you look at the kind of geography of it all in, in conjunction to the Bischler family and what they're experiencing on their behalf. So when I looked into reports in the original version, I was looking for reports around that time. I did not look into anything modern. This is an article from The Republic from Columbus, Indiana, July 2nd, 1976. North Vernon's Little Nessie. North Vernon. Huh. Does the Crossley monster still lurk in the misty shadows and murky waters of the duck pond? That is the question that has been handed down from generation to generation of Jennings County residents. Whether or not there really is a Crossley monster is something that has never been totally proven or refuted. Many tales have been told about the century-old legendary monster through the years. Old-timers say that the Crossley monster has scared the living daylights out of persons who have happened to run across them near the duck pond in the area now known as the Crossley Fish and Game Area on Road 3, south of North Vernon. The monster, old-timers say, has been sighted around the Green Bridge in the Crossley area, as well as the old duck pond. It is told that years ago, parents used to tell tales of the Crossley monster to make their children behave. Some say the legend of the monster began when a young mother was killed near the duck pond nearly a century ago. People say they have heard a young woman crying for her small baby near where the woman was killed on nights of full moons. Echoes of Pond Bank there. Wow. According to the story, the young woman was survived by a small son. Others say the story goes back to the time a man was hung by the neck at the duck pond by vigilantes after being accused of killing another man. That man, so people tell, told the vigilantes that he was innocent and that to prove it, he would come back to haunt them and their children and all their descendants until the end of time. Shortly after the man was hung, they keep saying hung, he should be hanged. Shortly after the man was hanged, Residents in the Crossley area began seeing things that the old-timers say that many people avoided the area at night because sometimes those who dared to ride by the duck pond at night were never seen or heard of again. Two years ago, the Crossley monster became a reality for two weeks at the North Vernon J.C.'s haunted house. 
Now, this is a story about someone dressing up as a monster, but it's interesting. There's a little name game here. Dan Hoskins of North Vernon, a JC, was inspired to create a Crossley monster for the haunted house based on the tales he had heard about the creature. Hoskins made a costume to wear to make him look like a wild, hairy, green-eyed monster and put on a show every night for two weeks. The Crossley monster was a great success and became the highlight of the haunted house. Since that time, the Crossley monster has been made a permanent part of the haunted house, keeping alive the century-old legend and at the same time providing fun for youngsters of all ages. Several Jennings County residents feel that the good accomplished through the use of the Crossley monster as the advertised highlight of the haunted house is a fair tribute to the legend and whomever it involved. So Anthony Hoskins yeah, yeah. was my original co-host for the, the story. So like interesting that little name game there with the guy dressing up as a monster. This article makes it seem like it's a pond monster. Yeah. There are, are rec- separate, separate monsters. There are recent accounts of people seeing Bigfoot in this Crossley area. Huh. And the Crossley huh. monster in recent accounts in the past few years is now a Bigfoot. And kids have seen it in this same area that they're talking about this other month. All right. Yeah. Wow. Something foul happening at the duck pond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's interesting. But you're saying that original account is, is placing it as like a sort of sea monster. I mean, they're calling it North Vernon's little Nessie. Yeah, they I mean, they don't describe it, but I'm, and they're, See, that- they're saying it's associated. They said, does the Crossley monster still lurk in the misty shadows and murky waters of the duck pond? Oh, that's yeah. interesting. So I, I wonder what makes them place it in the tuck like you know it, it could just be a generalization right being yeah, like yeah. okay it's like nessie you know bigfoot's like nessie because the cryptid but yeah that is really really interesting but you know i think you know not to reiterate it's so important to take note that these stories never end mm-hmm. in these areas that we're, we're at least where you have one kind of strange thing you kind of have yeah. all sorts of strange things so it wouldn't surprise me if they have like an an actual kind of Nessie type monster, like a sea monster, yeah, I was looking but at yeah, the population. Interesting. Is, of um, North Vernon is six thousand six hundred eight, so it's a pretty dense cryptid contingent working here. And <laughs> <laughs> if it's more than one, if, it's if pretty it's densely populated. Yeah, right. So that's the original article of the Witch Diggers, and. On the following episode, we will be breaking some new information. I'll just leave it at that. I thought it was good and important to go over the original article once again, because it's been so many years, mm-hmm. and to add new commentary on it. And I want to thank everyone here. John, you have Riverbend Comics at riverbendcomics.com. I do. Anything else you want to plug? No. Nope. Riverbendcomics.com. <laughs> it's where I get my comics. John has my books there. You can get all kinds of great stuff at Riverbend Comics. If you're into comics, support John. He's got new and old. Yeah. The only thing I'll say is in April, this is a ways out. We'll be in Hagerstown, Maryland at the uh, Hagerstown Comic Con. So come out and see me. I'll have all Tim's books there in person and maybe some uh, other goodies as well. Right on. And if anybody's looking for back issues, all that. You, all that stuff. All yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Pick a topic, any topic. John's R- always got it. Riverbendcomics.com. Is your Patreon set up yet, Tyler? Not yet, but I'm hoping by the beginning of February is what I'm shooting for. All right. Well, so I'm, I'm going to be traveling out and kind of going over some plans with that with a friend of mine over in Arizona, exploring, funny enough, some mines and caves out that way. Nice. Um, and kind of formulating a plan for that. So hopefully that will be up and running soon. But All right. as of yet, I don't really have anything to 
plug other than just my presence. So all right, well, when, when, hear, you get that role, all when you get that role and let us know and, and uh, we'll make sure to mention on the show or have you on to talk about it. Cool. Sounds good. Thank you. Allison, do you have anything to promote? Just strange familiars. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hey, thanks everybody. And like I said, there's a reason why these specific people are here and that will be revealed as well. This is super exciting. This is the big paranormal project for strange familiars going forward. And I'm super excited about it. So thank you all for being here. Very excited. Thanks, man. Well, thank you for having us, Tim. As usual, it was an honor. I really appreciate everything that you guys do over on your end. I think you're doing really great work and I'm honored to lend a hand in any way that I'm able. Awesome. Thank you, man. This conversation will continue for patrons. The exclusive patron episode for this month will be a continuation of this conversation about the witch diggers. You don't want to miss it. One of my favorite talks we've had in a long time, I think. Patreon.com slash strange familiars. All right. What's this curious thing you have? Okay, this week, it's a photo, <laughs> but it's a very specific photo in that I thought, well, Perhaps in her in her better time, maybe Susan Bischler, like she would probably be the right age <laughs> to be this lady in the picture. So actually, she'd probably be a little older. But Susan Bischler had a particular look. I'm thinking <laughs> <laughs> from the description with the teeth and the. So I I don't think I've seen many tin types cut in a oval shape like this. Probably was to go in an oval frame. Oh, okay. an oval case. Mm. which also would probably explain the revenue stamp on the back of it. We went over this before, but just quickly for those who may not remember, what is a revenue stamp? It's a, a tax that was levied on certain products during the end of the Civil War. This, so these date from 64 to 66, and they were for playing cards, for photos, things like that. And they just add a little extra tax onto them. But it helps date things like that. Yeah, so this tintype is precisely from either 1864 to 1866. All right. And then you can tell probably how how expensive it was based on how much the tax is on it. It's a nice clear image. It is. She's very pretty. A very nice clear image. clothing reference and a pretty image in a unique shape. All right. I will take a photo of this photo and I will put that photo mm -hmm. in the show notes. Sounds good. So now we're three photos removed. Mm-hmm. But if you click on the one that's in the show notes, it'll take you to our Etsy shop. Which will eventually take you back to it, and then you can own it. Exactly, where you can purchase that. And other curiosities of the week, those that are left. While you're at Etsy, check out our other offerings, artwork, including this week's episode artwork. Purchase the original there. We also have prints, copies of my books, Strange Familiars t-shirts, mugs, patches, stickers, and a lot more. Our shop name is Lost Grave, but if you type in Strange Familiars, you should see our stuff come up. There's always links in the show notes as well to our Etsy shop. And of course, I want to thank everybody who supports us on Etsy. That's a big help as well. All right, we'll continue this conversation over on Patreon. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars.
Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Color Arts. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more or purchase music, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. We're on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, one word, no underscore. You can find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com. And like I said, for merch, always go to strangefamiliars.com slash merch.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.